a building you put into the city is an intervention in a setting that's there. And so unless you consider it as part of that assemblage, and when you design a large group of buildings or a whole campus, the kind of disciplines that come into the play are quite different than when you design a house. Because of that, there's often the case that there are very successful, gifted architects who do very well at the small scale. But when the scale blows up, they, they fail. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Devoting your life to architecture is no easy thing. Oftentimes, the average architect will not build their first building until decades into his or her career. Lofty visions are tempered by critics, clients, regulations, and neighbors. And even award-winning geniuses are asked to pour hundreds of man-hours into competitions that may never be built. Even success can be fleeting. My guest today has lived an incredible life in the field, experiencing all of the ups and downs in a career that nearly anyone in the profession would kill for. Moshe Safdi. Born in Haifa, he spent most of his youth in the young state of Israel before emigrating to Montreal in his teens. As a young architect, working briefly for the famed modernist Louis Kahn, he submitted a project to the World Expo of 1967, which you might remember being mentioned in our episode with Bruce Mao, and which became the famed and still standing Habitat 67. This groundbreaking reimagining of residential housing would go on to make Softy an international star. In 1971, he was even on the cover of Newsweek. While the radical ideas of Habitat 67 didn't flourish as much as he would have liked, Safdie's career took various interesting turns. Returning professionally to Israel in the 1970s, Safdie built various important works, none more so than the Holocaust History Museum there, followed by multiple museums and other large works in Canada and the United States. For a third act of sorts, he began a series of mega-projects in Asia. You might know his Marina Bay Sands Resort in Singapore that is essentially three skyscrapers with another one placed on its side and laid on top. You may have seen it in the film Crazy Rich Asians or the often Instagrammed Jewel Changchi Airport in Singapore that has the world's tallest indoor waterfall. Aside from being such a busy architect, he's written many books, including the notorious Form and Purpose that lambasted the ills of postmodernism. His latest is a memoir, if Walls Could Speak, My Life in Architecture, that details his entire career, from his prodigy days as a fresh face in radical design to today. I wanted to ask the architect and educator why he wrote the book, what it was like working for Louis Kahn, how he dealt with the lack of progress in design for some of his forward-thinking ideas, his adventures in Asia, and more. I caught up with Moshe from his headquarters in Boston. You've, you've written books before, obviously, but uh, your new book, If Walls Could Speak, uh, you know, walks through your entire life. And, and I wanted to know, you know, why, why this book? Why now? You know, it's been brewing in me for some time. I, I even started writing it and doing outlines a couple of times in the past few years. I just felt that, uh, you know, I learned a great deal working as an architect for many decades. Uh, I thought there was a lot to share about things we learned and the experiences I've had. And I, you know, as a teacher who's, you know, spent much of my life teaching, 
I always felt the best way to talk about architecture, to explain it, to explain the approach to it, its philosophy, its uh, its values, is by telling telling about it, not by preaching, not by, you know, someone said about it that's re- read it uh, recently that it's really a manifesto. Mm. Uh, maybe it is, but it wasn't meant to be a manifesto except other than by telling about the making of architecture, the choices you make, the pressures that you experience. You un- you make people understand what the environment is about, what the options are, what the choices are. Uh, I was hoping that everybody who says I know nothing about architecture but will thereafter having read it would feel that they have a feel and understanding of how and why, what is possible, why they might like or dislike something, how they might evaluate a success or failure in architecture. Now, COVID gave me the opportunity, you know, it was just... Uh, I was stuck at home and on the Zoom most of the day, and I got into the discipline of spending several hours writing writing a day. You write in your book that one of your earliest memories is hosting Australian soldiers for Sabbath dinner uh, during the war um, when you were a child. You tell me a little bit about your memory of your life back then and how it's sort of shaped you today. Uh, you know, my early me- one of my early memories is, is uh, when we traveled to Lebanon, uh, escaping, or, or not escaping, but kind of thinking it'll be uh, safer there when, when uh, Rommel was coming up uh, uh, North Africa towards Palestine then. And uh, we, uh, it, it was when my sister, Sylvia, was born in Lebanon, and I remember the hospital vaguely and uh, the hilly, beautiful terrain and uh, the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, and my memories in Haifa are very much in the sort of uh, uh, experience of the war. I remember the balloons that used to be flown over the city uh, to, uh, you know, as uh, aircraft uh, safety because the Italians were bombing us nightly. I remember going down to the air raid shelter in the basement of uh, our apartment building. Uh, a, lot, a lot of memories around that, and that is when I'm four, four years old. So. Later on in your life, when you, you moved away from Israel as a teen and your father was having some issues with his business and, and he was in the textile business and you went to Montreal, uh, before that, uh, you know, like one of our other guests, uh, uh, Daniel Liebeskind, uh, you spent some time in a kibbutz, and and there was. Uh, do you think that impacted your? You know, it's 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 hard for me to not kind of draw a line between things like habitat and these sort of greater ideals in architecture, um, and maybe that experience is that fair to say? You know, it, it was it was more than just spending time on the kibbutz. We. Our education system in Israel at the time was sort of two components. The school, the formal school, and I went to the Reali school, which was an elite school. Uh, uh, in Israel then there was still private schools. Today they're all public. And the youth movement, and there were two or three different movements, the sort of uh, the Boy Scouts, not Boy Scouts, because we were scouts, boy and girl scouts, which was one of the three youth movements, totally different to the Scouts in America. And this was a kind of ideological, socialist, 
We got together twice a week. We uh, traveled the country, uh, hiking across the, the sceneries, and we spent summers working on the kibbutz. And eventually the plan is you go to the army, uh, a unit that encourages you to be tied to the agriculture, and you form and build your own kibbutz. That's the path. And I was in the path, uh, living on the kibbutzim, working in the summers, tracking the country, uh, raising bees and chicken at home uh, in my little farm. That was the life of a young Israeli circa early 50s. And why, why architecture? How did, that, how did one lead to the, to the other? Did that happen? Did that fascination happen in Montreal or there was anything earlier? It happened in Montreal, and I guess it, it leads me to ask the question, would I be an architect if, I, if my parents would not have emigrated uh, out of Israel at that point? The path was very clear. I was even registered to go to the Kaduri School, which is, a, which is an agriculture school, uh, um, uh, which, uh, which would have even reinforced that path. But here I am. Uh, we leave Israel. It's traumatic. Hmm. Uh, as a bit of a sweetener, my parents spend the three months we're going through Europe, going through some of the great sites, Rome, Milan, Paris, London, uh, you know, the great architectural sites, historical sites. Uh, and that's a kid 15 who has never traveled out of Israel before. <laughs> um, as I write in the memoir, I remember vividly landing in Rome airport and having a taste of the first taste of Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I arrive in cold, gray Montreal, Oh, yeah. And I do two years of high school, and at the end, they give us an aptitude test, like career to help you, career, and I sort of fill it up, and there's a path, and it says, very good in math, I remember the graph, and very good in the arts, and art, math and art cross, and it says, suitable for architecture. Hmm. And uh, while there was expectations, I joined my father's business as a a traditional Sephardic family. Uh, I knew I, that was not my path. And architecture sounded great. I used to design sketch, design cars. I was kind of, uh, you know, interested in, in the design of things, uh, maybe subconsciously. And as soon as it just clicked, and I said, that's it. And uh, a few weeks after I was in the School of Architecture, I knew that I found my calling. And when you told your dad you weren't going to join the, the family business and uh, become an architect, what was that conversation like? Well, that was uh, a difficult conversation because uh, my father was deeply disappointed, uh, so much so that uh, he sent emissaries to talk me out of it. Uh, there was a lawyer he worked with, and I remember the lawyer coming to see me and saying, uh, well, you know, your father's building a new business. He's had a hard time, and he would really love to have you by his side. And, uh, you know, I was stubborn, and I knew exactly what I wanted. And so he said, he said, let me suggest a compromise. You spend the summers while you're studying architecture uh, in your father's uh, business, so you get to know something about it in case you want to change your mind. So I spent three summers working uh, at the family business, 
which uh, leads me today to be able to, you know, touch a piece of textile and tell you this is poplin, this is mm. a twill, uh, this is 120 by 120 thread. I know my textiles. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, as soon as by the second, third year, I was doing very well. They put me on scholarship. I was getting prizes, and, and, and my parents were rapidly appeased. Before we return to Moshe Safdi, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Andre Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Pierre Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. Designed by one of our former podcast guests, the one and only Philippe Stark, the new Serengeti collection was inspired by Stark's time spent remotely in rural Portugal. There, among the sea, sand, and raw nature, he imagined this new series that's straight out of your wildest safari dreams. With clean lines, plush cushions, and rendered in fine sanded teak with visible peg joinery, Serengeti is a modern-day expression of a classic campaign furniture, and the new collection is available now. My favorite in this new line is the two-seater sofa with a canvas awning and cushions with beautiful piping. Tailored, yet ready to withstand and harmonize with the nature that surrounds you, it's the perfect way to live out your own out-of-Africa experience. Robert Redford not included. Make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. And when and as a young architect, you were for Louis Kahn, and and how did that happen? And and what was he like as a as someone to work for? He was a, a huge force in your life, from what, from what I read in the book. Yes, even though I only worked for him for a year and a quarter, it was a very, mm. very short period. But um, uh, while I was still a student in in fifty nine, uh, I got a I won a scholarship to join one of. Uh, one of e uh, from each school of architecture in Canada, five of us at the time, to travel through North America to study housing, which actually led to my doing housing for my thesis. But on that trip, uh, we traveled to Philadelphia and we visited the Richards Medical Building of Khan at the University of Pennsylvania, and I, I just fell in love with that building. I thought that was a radical building. I, I saw. I instantly saw all the things that later became it became famous for, but mm. uh, without much preparation, and that kind of stayed in me. I came back, did my thesis on housing, and my professor, uh, Van Ginkel, who was my thesis advisor, uh, offered me a job in his office, uh, which I accepted. And um, in the course of working for him, which was mostly uh, on city planning and urban design, uh, I expressed the desire uh, or the dream of going to work for Khan and also getting involved with construction, with buildings. And uh, uh, Blanche Lemko, the wife of Van Ginkel, had been a professor at Penn and knew Khan and uh, dropped a little note saying, would you be prepared to see this young man? Um, 
And I drove down to Philly for the weekend with, you know, we didn't have portfolios very sophisticated like students have today, just a bunch of drawings in a folder. And I visited Khan on a Saturday morning in his office. Uh, more recently, we found uh, my name in his calendar, which uh, I got courtesy of the uh, the Khan archive at uh, Penn. And... Uh, <laughs> I just walked through my thesis, a few drawings, and he says, okay, uh, uh, why don't you come in two months? I'm going to have a cataract operation. I'll be out of hospital, da-da-da. Why don't you start on such and such a date? And that was it. And it was an amazing experience, as short as it was. Um, what, when you talk to students about Khan's impact in architecture, how do you describe it? Uh, I, I just I mean there's several layers to to Khan in terms of his impact on me. Uh, it was it was above all how to be an architect. What does it mean to be an architect? It means to immerse yourself in the in the in the program of a building of what it's all about. What the what will the life in the building be? What does it, as he put it, what does the building want to be? And and around that you craft a, a building, and you think of it. You you craft the construction and the materials and the details, and every step is as important from the charcoal sketch to the really delicate detail of how a railing uh, meets a wall and and how two materials come together, and all the way to construction where he would spend a lot of time and adjust details and learn from. Uh, the, the the craftsman building. So it's from it, you know, it's from the beginning of conception uh, till you turn the key to the to the client, and so that was for me the most important lesson. But also, Count, of course, uh, had very particular sensibilities. Uh, he was above all a builder. He thought of architecture as as a building craft. Uh, very different from what the mainstream is today, where people conceive of shapes and forms and figure that there's a whole world of specialists and engineers who will find a way to build it. Uh, he, he understood the connectivity between conception and the form and uh, the, the method of its building. In other words, that they're, they're inseparable. If you're building a steel, something else comes out of the, then building it with brick or with mud or with wood or whatever, that, that that's profound. So both in terms of his being a listener to what the building wants to be uh, and to his being a builder in bringing materials to craft it beautifully, I think these are the two lessons apart from his taste and, and fascination with, uh, with robust forms and geometry. All of that is, is secondary to the big ideas that drove him. And when it comes to Habitat 67, you know, which was so successful and, you know, it happened at such a young age, which of course, you know, I'm sure comes with its ups and downs, right? Um, you know, when you're surrounded by people who are telling you how great you are and and trying to, uh, you know, influence you or your next steps. And, and in some interviews, you've, you've sort of talked about, um, you know, the regrets that some of the concepts were not proliferated as much as everyone wanted them to be, um, like uh, Puerto Rico and, and, and things like that. Um, do you tell me a little bit about 
those struggles, you know, trying to convince the world of architecture um, that these concepts needed to be, um, you know, put into practice and not just uh, not just on paper, not just for an expo kind of thing. I mean, in that sense, my response to you today is very conditioned by the full cycle of the story, uh, which is perhaps why I wrote the memoir at that moment in my life, that uh, after building Habitat, which seemed like everything would be possible, I was the big hero cover of on the cover of Newsweek, and I start getting all these commissions, one by one, I can't get them built. They don't get built. Uh, the system, the entire, uh, the, uh, literally the system cannot accommodate so many radical ideas, construction and, and rethinking how housing is constructed, etc. And so there's a several years of kind of uh, disappointment. The 70s and 80s were not times to explore architecture in, in the development sense, uh, architecture which was uh, built by developers and not like museums or libraries, which were different. And so my practice shifted to institutional work. That's the period when I did many museums and libraries and uh, courthouses and uh, federal buildings. Uh, but uh, I had the good fortune to live long enough to see the whole thing come back full circle with the next generation embracing these ideas vividly, um, people like Bjorke Ingels and some of the Dutch young firms and so on, uh, doing habitats right and left and, and you know, even acknowledging uh, uh, the sort of connection and, and inspiration. Uh, and that, that the, we've come now to the point where the world is ripe for rethinking housing and rethinking how we build the workspace and high-rise towers. And, uh, and so I've, uh, I sort of have the satisfaction of seeing it both in my own work with all the projects in Asia that we've realized in recent years. Um, the other aspect of it is uh, more specific. What I propose for Habitat initially was 1,200 units, 25 stories high, with all the community facilities under the structure. What got built was a small-scale little piece of it of 159 units. It was not the whole community. And I keep lamenting that today because I know that had I, the government had the funds and the time to authorize building the whole thing, uh, with all due humility, the path of architecture would have been somewhat different. Um, and I still hope at this point, when there's much more receptivity and the technology has come around, that I will still have an opportunity to build a whole community, three-dimensional, with all the facilities, mixed use, integrated into it, as I had proposed uh, when I was uh, 25 years old. And Part of the success of Habitat was this idea of, you know, the importance of light and nature and the into contemporary architecture and public housing and things like that. Um, why do you? I mean, today it's it's hard for someone to to talk to anyone about you know large public housing projects or anything like that where these sort of ideas of natural light and um, and connecting with nature and different levels and as you mentioned Bjarka and so on. Um, why do you think it's taking so long, in, in a sense? 
to to kind of realize these sort of <laughs> what seems quite obvious. I think in the realm of housing and the, the workspace uh, architecture, which is sort of the guts of the city and the guts. Of, I mean, basically, we spend most of our lives in our dwellings and on our workspace. And then, of course, there are the museums and there's and and the libraries and and the public buildings. But the bulk of the city is made up of housing, and and uh, and the workspace. And these are economically driven, and they're dominated by developers and uh, and and a whole industry. And and uh, this this whole industry is designed in in our own society in our own culture towards uh, you know profit making expediency um, and they will respond to the market but only to a point and and so uh, those forces are forces of conservatism and lack of exploration the, the they will give you the minimum that they can get away with and that's one force and then there's the force of educating the public to understand that more is possible, that there are better options, and to build up, again, it's an educational process, that this, that, that this is worth striving for and worth paying for. And I think we are in a process where that has matured. The standard of living has risen. Uh, the affluent are back in the city. They were quietly in the suburbs, happy. They didn't have to worry about uh, high-rise housing. They're living. The affluent are living in high-rise housing. The billionaires want the 100th floor on 57th Street overlooking looking the park. That that's, tells you that housing in the city is on the agenda. And, and that's what's bringing this new, new open exploration. But also we've come a long way to understanding our dependency on nature as a fundamental quality of well-being. I mean, when I, uh, the motto for Habitat at the time was for everyone a garden. And uh, it was the title of my, my book, my second book at the time. And you think back how, if I might use the word prophetic it was, that it, it actually ushered in the, uh, the era, the era where people began to understand that plant life, that nature, that open space, that a balcony, that a terrace, that a window that opens, the, the fresh air from the outside, are fundamental to our well-being. We are not designed to be well in capsules or in artificial light around the clock or in, in any of those synthetic environments that increasingly were being pushed into. In fact, the, one of the worst moments, uh, as comfortable as it is in architecture, is the invention of air conditioning, which allowed buildings to become deeper and deeper and, and buildings pushed you away, further away from the window because they were made, you know, whether it's a mall or an airport or, 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 or an office building, air conditioning, uh, allowed uh, uh, to push people away from uh, uh, the, the, the outside world. And so we've come full circle to understand how, the, how essential it is to us. And that's true in urbanism, and that's true in, in, in architecture, in housing, and in the workspace. And so I think we are in actually a very exciting moment of uh, enlightenment about the possibilities. And was there anything about that time in your life that was uniquely shaped by Canada? 
and Canadian culture? I think there's definitely something Canadian to uh, the fact that Habitat got built there by a 25-year-old recently arrived immigrant who who had zero connections at any level to anyone. Um, you know, here I am, a civil servant working for the government, uh, designing the master plan for the world exhibition. The very fact that uh, my professor was put in charge and was able to gather this group of young people. And I have the chutzpah to say, oh, I'll come and do this, but on the side, we'll, I want to try and develop my thesis as one of the pavilions for the exhibition, and I'm given resources to do it. Okay, that can go, that can happen maybe anywhere, but then the two or three civil servants the, the man in charge of the construction of Expo was the chief of the Corps of, the, of Engineers of the Army. Uh, think of the equivalent of the United States, the Corps of Engineers of the Army, and a couple of secretaries uh, accepting a project by a 25-year-old that involves new construction techniques, building factories, uh, you know, twisting the construction industry. Just would not happen. And Canada at that moment had that optimism uh, there was that sense of the centennial that was being celebrated. The tensions between Quebec and the rest of the country had not yet erupted. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they erupted during Expo when, uh, I mean, at least they became publicly recognized when, when uh, Charles de Gaulle made his uh, great declaration of Vive le Quebec Libre. But this was a moment in Canada that was... Uh, optimistic and uh, and trusted youth and civil servants who were prepared to risk their career uh, for an idea. Before we return to Moshe Safdi, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems, to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian craftsmanship, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. Known for more than just their furniture, the kitchen systems of Polyform can create dream spaces for nearly any situation, transforming them into architectural wonders. The Alea Pro is a restyling of the famed Alea Kitchen from Polyform and combines a highly contemporary and luxurious look with all of the functionality you'd expect from an Italian design. Using smoked glass, marble elements, islands that appear to float, and subtly lit vitrine-like showcases make your everyday tools shine like prized objects. With such a wide array of material choices to consider, the Alea Pro can go from minimal and organic to sleek and expressive. It's a design aficionado's dream. For more information about the Alea Pro system and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And fast forwarding a bit, and and when your career turns you know, to work being done in Israel and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that shift, and uh, w which was so impactful in your career and in, in the incredible work that you've done. Um, what was that kind of 
like returning? Was there a kind of a revolt, reverse culture shock? You know, <laughs> someone travels for a long time and comes back home and and, and feels that. Uh, what was that like for you? And how did that happen? Well, the context is that I arrive in Montreal and I constantly thinking the next uh, the next airplane or the next ship I'm back home. I mean, I was really missing my friends and the country. And uh, after graduation, they all go to the army, and I go into architecture. And I say, "Oh, I'll, you know, after architecture, I'm going to go back." Then habitat happens, and so on and so forth. So I keep postponing my return uh, during Expo while while everybody was celebrating. The Six Day War broke out, and that was very traumatic for me because um, I felt guilty not being there. One of my uh, school friends uh was killed in the battle uh on on in jerusalem uh i was feeling very down about it and and right after uh the end of expo um and uh coinciding with the after the the euphoria of the six-day war there was a conference of architects international conference in tel aviv and i get invited to be a keynote speaker and so that's my first return home in 19 years, and I and I arrive as a as a hero. I you know I've just built habitat, and I'm received by the mayor of Jerusalem and the minister of housing with open arms. Uh, uh, come work in the country, openness, uh, open an office, and it it was at the same time I'm seeing this place that sort of was sort of getting. Uh, more, more, more rosy in my eyes every year, a little provincial country with a lot of uh, uh, expeditiously built uh, public housing shikunim uh, for the for the immigrants who were arriving. Uh, so, and yet it's like being back home. Um, and I decide to make a big commitment. I open a branch office. I start commuting. I, I take on major parts of Jerusalem, uh, both in the within the walled city and outside, uh, uh, as projects to to uh, to to tackle. I'm commissioned by the city and the government. Uh, not all of it gets built, and some of it is real struggle. The Mamilla Center for Jerusalem took me 40 years to realize, but at the same time, I'm also building some uh, amazing work that maybe I would not have had an opportunity else. My first airport, I design a whole city, I oversee its construction for 25 years. So Israel, it becomes a laboratory uh, for, for many ideas, for many types of projects. Uh, and at the same time, I'm working around the world elsewhere. So I'm always with one foot there, but the other foot, uh, other places. And, you know, as we as you spoke about earlier, when, you know, you had this period where it was a struggle to get people to accept some more ra radical ideas. But then later in your life, you have these amazing mega scale projects in Asia that are quite radical and and, you know, accomplish great things and on giant scales. Um, do you find is your experience working in Asia? Is it that your design and your ideas are better accepted there or is it? Do they kind of see you as, uh, you know, someone from the West and they're, they're willing to give you latitude that they might not give like a local architect? Well, the story of Marina Bay Sands in some ways is, is very telling about Asia and telling about my relationship to Asia. First of all, I get commissioned to do it by fluke. 
Uh, it's the inauguration of the of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. You know, everybody's very deeply moved by what we had done there. And and at the after the ceremony, uh, Sheldon Adelson, the owner of Las Vegas Sands, comes who had been a, a, a donor to Yad Vashem, uh, wheels himself in a, in his wheel. Uh, he was in a wheelchair then uh, after the ceremony and says. Uh, you did a pretty good job here. I'm I'm looking at a pro. I'm competing for a project in Singapore, um, and they want me to have a contemporary architect. Are you interested? Uh, you know, I certainly haven't done, didn't do integrated resorts, mega hotels, casinos, or anything of the kind. And so I, I, he didn't know that I had a history in Singapore by then. You know, I'd spent many decades in and out of Singapore. And so we take it on and I come up, we had four months, not one day more to submit. And I come up with a scheme that involves Sky Park and all kinds of things. Now, the context was interesting because it was a competition for developers, each with their own architect and everybody was, and, and the price of the land was fixed. So they were offering, you know, heaven and earth just to win it. Of course, later they had to deliver what they promised. And so I had almost a carte blanche to come up with ideas that I'd been interested in for years, like creating a park in the sky on the 59th floor, you know, showing how you could take high-rise environment and, and make it connect with nature and full of green. And in that sense, I was playing up very sympathetically to the declare objectives of the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Singapore. And so there comes the Asian component, the Singaporeans open and desiring good urban design, a green architecture, integration of plant life. All this is all being spelt out in the call for, for proposals for that complex. And while Adelson is very skeptical about these ideas and almost fearing them, uh, we submit it and we win. And once we win, we deliver. There's no choice. And it's a powerful enough scheme economically to allow him or them, the, the business side of the project, to realize these ideas. And it becomes the most profitable project maybe ever built historically. Uh, it's not that it's a nice idea that goes flat on its face. It, it becomes... Uh, and the architecture contributes to its success. No question about that. I mean, uh, and then it goes beyond what you dream of. It becomes a symbol of that city. You know, every time anybody mentions Singapore, boom, the picture of Marina Bay. Well, that opened the door in Asia in a very dramatic way. You know, projects uh, in, from China, Singapore, uh, Colombo, uh, across Asia. And now you come to, to your question. Yes, Asia is much more open, much more adventurous generally. And certainly in my own case, we've had opportunities to do uh, very unusual things that in the life of me, I could not conceive being able to realize in, in North America. Were you worried you couldn't deliver? I mean, you talk about that kind of that <laughs> speed of like of having to design something so on, you know, unheard of at the time. Did you was there? A yeah, part I was of you very that worried. Yes, I, I was. In fact, I was saying, yeah, we're taking this on. But if we win it, what the hell is going to happen? And, and so 
the realization of Marina Bay Sands was a transformation of my office. You know, until then, we did work at a large scale, but at a smaller space and nothing of the scale of $5 billion building. My office, which was then maybe 70 people, expanded. We had to get another building next door. We were 130 people. And then it was assumed that once the project goes to Singapore, we would fade away. But no, we take control of the whole thing. And while working with local firms, we ship 15 people to Singapore and control the whole process. Well, at the end of Marina Bay Sands, that was built in four years, 8 million square feet, designed and built in four years, we knew we could do anything. And with our relatively small office, and I say 100 people, relatively small, 100 people today is a relatively small office. Offices of six, seven, eight hundred people, a thousand people. We can do anything faster and better. And, I, you know, it's, this is a statement of fact we have done after Marina Bay, the project, the Raffle City Chongqing, 10 million square feet, most complex project we've ever taken on. And so that is a wonderful sense that the opportunity in Asia has also transformed our office in terms of the complexity and scale of assignment it can take on and deliver successfully. And I want to ask you a question that would actually probably appeal to or apply to any architect or designer or creative person. Um, you know, you talk in the book about uh, ideas that you know don't don't make it to reality. It's it, to me as, as as someone who who writes. It sounds like someone who writes ten novels and only one gets published. Um, how do you personally deal with this kind of cadence to your creative life, where you can pour your heart and soul into something for 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 months at a time and and never quite make it to the end? It's it's very tough. It's the painful side of being an architect. And there's two scales to it in terms of the depth of disappointment. Uh, we do a lot of competitions. All of us somehow, our profession is skewed this way and we are exploited by continuities of competitions where we labor away for hardly any compensation or no compensation. Uh, and we can't, we can't resist. And because of the nature of things, you don't win them all. I mean, we we win maybe, say, 50%. So half the things you design don't get built. When you have a very brilliant idea, or you think it's a brilliant idea, and when the winner is not such a brilliant idea, or you think it's not a brilliant idea, uh, you, there's, this, there's deep disappointment. Why didn't they see it? You know, how come? Uh, but but you get over it, you know, you get over it. The deeper disappointments are when you work for two, three, four years on a project. Uh, for example, I worked for three years on Columbus Center in New York. Uh, we came to the point of construction. I had a 40-person office dedicated to it in New York. We had ordered the stone. I, you know, had hundreds of meetings with with the clients and contractors and the drawings were all done and then the project got canceled. I worked for three years on the Ballet Opera House of Toronto and just as we begin construction, there's a provincial election, the NDP, the Socialist Party gets uh, elected and the first thing the, the uh, elected uh, premier of the province says is, 
opera is for the rich. I cancel the project. So one statement, wipe out a project that, you know, we devoted years to. These are the really kind of uh, leave a scar. They leave a scar. They're not just painful. They leave a scar. It heals over time. And, of course, you have such joyful moments where a project you've worked on for four or five years opens to the public and you see the people pouring in. Recently, we had our medical school, the Einstein Medical School in in Sao Paulo in Brazil open. And because of COVID, I hadn't been there during the construction as much as I normally go to. So here's the finished building. And by the time I arrive, the students are in the building. And they're going crazy taking pictures and TikToking away and Instagramming away. And and these days, you know whether you failed or succeeded by just the scale and what's being said in the in the social media, and you see the kind of sense of wonder and joy of the students and the faculty, and and there's no greater joy than 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 being part of that uh, affirmation. And one of your books that uh, you you cover in the new book is uh, Form and Purpose, which sort of tackled sort of the evolution of modernism and architecture. Uh, for you know, for those who haven't read it, can you can you describe what kind of ideals that you were trying to get across, and and do you think that those ideals have held up over time to to today? Form and purpose was written in the early eighties at the height of postmodernism as a kind of a cult in architecture, and it in a, in a sense it was written as a counter to Venturi's book uh, Complexities and Something in Architecture. It it was. It was to reaffirm values that postmodernism as a kind of as a school uh, completely either overlooked or contradicted. You know, I was educated in, in so what we call now the modern movement, which while it failed in terms of some of the constructed projects that were the, the you know post-war uh, realizations of, 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 of that movement, it, it had deep social roots uh, as sort of architecture being uh, an, a kind of a, a service, a public obligation, and that also that there was a con- commitment to some level of egalitarian uh, uh, fairness in that architecture was not just doing castles for kings and, 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 and queens, that it had, it had to do with the city, with people, with, wealth, with the welfare of people. And postmodernism kind of cycled architecture back into some form of pure design, uh, liberated, you could call it, from social obligation. And I wrote it because I felt that it was, and as and I was sense I was experiencing it as a as a teacher at Harvard, where I came to had the urban design program and I'm working with the students and I'm seeing the impact this is having on them. And I felt that this was really making our profession a permissive, irrelevant profession. And I was trying to steer this back and I made a lot of enemies doing it at the time in my profession because I named names and I was very explicit and I wrote a piece in Atlantic called Private Jokes in Public Places. Looking back, uh, now it seems obvious because postmodernism faded away. The permissiveness, though, did not fade away instantly. I mean, the permissiveness is still with us in a way, but I think sl- slightly 
you know, receding. The permissiveness impacted this period where very sculptural, I can do anything kind of projects were being built and being sort of the centerpiece of the avant-garde of the profession. But I think today, just the environmental reality, the, 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 the scale of the issues we have to address, events such as COVID and its uh, post-mortem in terms of what it means environmentally and architecturally, I think these are steering us away from the permissiveness that began in the 80s. And, you know, you mentioned that the the book is somewhat of a manifesto and you talk about these sort of utopian ideals. And I guess if you had to encapsulate it into a thought, what is your vision of the future? What is your what is your wish in a sort of a utopian way? When you when you put the question to me that way, I'm overwhelmed by it, because I guess the first question is demography. Are we going to keep multiplying uh, limitlessly until we just get to the numbers that destroy the planet? Uh, these are the big questions. I mean, to me, demography, can we develop a robust, healthy economy that is not dependent on constant growth? Or inversely, can we get to a constant, more constant demography that's not always growing, and then we grow the economy in order to raise the standard of living of everyone on this planet? Is there a model by which we continue to improve production and wealth, but not to spread it to an ever-increasing number of people, but to actually improving the quality of life of a more limited number of people? Uh, and if birth rates stabilize, and in fact, in some countries that they they are even below reproduction rate, uh, if worldwide average stabilizes so that we are, you know, remain the the the, the billions that we are, but not double every few, uh, every few decades, then I think a model of the economy that allows the standard of living to rise will allow better housing, will allow more recreation, will allow all kinds of things. So uh, we've got the tools to provide plenty at every level, but we need to do so in a context where we are not self-destructing numerically at the same time. Thank you to Moshe and everyone at his firm and Resnikow PR for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm-hmm.